Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Welcome to the Oasis. This is the first Sunday in Lent. Notice that it's not the first Sunday of Lent, because Martin Luther and the Reformers wanted to reserve a day of each week during the Lent season to rejoice over the great salvation that God has given to his people. Apart from the usual pondering about Jesus' suffering, first seen in his 40 days of temptation by Satan, and then extending throughout his entire life. In the coming weeks, we will re-examine his life, death, burial, and resurrection, and consider what it all means to us. But in the meantime, I find that it's typical that in this third year of Bible readings, we have a three-year lectionary cycle, we find ourselves in the midst of the jam-packed first chapter of Mark, but we're taking a step back, a few verses back from where we've been. From the past few weeks, we're going back in the gospel lesson from the, to the baptism of Jesus and his subsequent temptation. Now, Mark doesn't have very much to say about all of that, and we've seen the other gospel writers cover it more extensively, so we'll be looking at the Old Testament instead, because it, too, is typical. It's typical in the original linguistic sense, that of making an image. A long, long time ago, way before there were inkjet printers, even before word processors and the dot matrix printing, right? Uh, the way most people put formal words to paper was by using type. I once had a portable royal typewriter, one that I used occasionally to write philosophy papers on my lap on, in the front seat of my car while I was sitting in the college parking lot, you know, hoping to come up with something grade-worthy just a couple of hours before it was due in class, which also was typical. <laughs> a typical piece of type is what they term a negative image. If you look at a typeface, it would be a mirror image of the letter that we would recognize. When this kind of typeface is used to strike an ink-infused ribbon, transferring the image to a piece of paper behind that ribbon, we get the letters and words as they were intended to be seen. In the same way, similar way, there are many places in the Old Testament where we are given an image of a biblical personage that closely resembles some aspect of either God the Father or, more commonly, his son, Jesus. Scholars refer to that as typology. And we'll be using it to find some striking images of the Savior as revealed in the pages of Genesis. So we need a little backstory as we get into this Old Testament reading for today to set things up we're still two generations out from the establishment of the nation Israel. When we first encounter this man, Abram, a pagan, formerly from the city of Ur of the Chaldeans, but most recently living in the Mesopotamian city of Haran, you know, out there in the middle of the desert region of the Middle East. 
Now, I don't know why God went out into the desert after this particular lost sheep specifically, but he didn't just bring him back, as the song we sang said. He used Abram to start the fold that would eventually become Israel some several hundred years later. This man was called out by God to go to a new place, leaving behind everything else he ever knew. So taking his wife, servants, possessions, as well as his nephew Lot and his family, Abram set off toward Canaan. At this time, most people knew of God. They knew there was a God, but not many truly knew him. So Abram had a bit of a learning curve to go through. He first had trust issues about God's promises, especially the one about becoming the father of a multitude, considering how old he and his wife were. So he and Sarai, that's the way you pronounce it in Hebrew, Sarah, conspired to circumvent that promise by having Abram father a child with their maidservant, Hagar. Now, that wasn't God's intention. That's not what he meant by them being a great nation. So a few years later, about 13, God appears to Abram and reiterates a problem, promise again. And in the process, he changes Abram's name from that mocking, exalted father, which is what Abram means, to Abraham father of a multitude. And the Lord also changes Sarai, or it you know, means dominating, is what that meant, to Sarah, Sarah, meaning a princess. After this, Abraham gets circumcised at the age 99, along with his 13-year-old son, Ishmael, and all the male servants of his household, painfully marking them as the first representatives of a set-apart group of people chosen by God. Later, we are told that Abraham and Sarah were commanded to name their son Yitzhak, Isaac, which means laughter. This name was most likely chosen because when the Lord came to visit the couple at Mamre, in person, this is a pre-incarnate visit by Jesus, by the way. And there he repeated the promise that they would bear a son. He told them both at the same time. Well, Sarah, considering her childlessness and advanced age, she laughed to herself. See, that's, that's where the laughter comes in. Isaac becomes the son of the promise the only son of the promise, which curiously enough becomes a messianic title, and therein lies our tale. Decades later, the Lord, quote, tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. Right away, I have questions. Your only son? What is that about? Isaac isn't Abraham's only son. He's not even his firstborn. That title belongs to Ishmael. 
However, we should take notice that in this text, your only son is repeated three times. And three is always an interesting number in Scripture. It points to the triune God. And there's also this future event to keep in mind when God the Father would watch his truly only son die, all for our benefit. The next teaser in our text is a reference to the third day, another three there, and that bears a bit more scrutiny. It says, on the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them, together. That phrase, the third day, should ring a few bells. It's it's evocative because it recalls the three days that Jesus was in the tomb. And it speaks to something important about Abraham's approach to the Lord's strange request. Ever hear of the phrase, he's dead to me? Well, when God told Abraham to take his son, slay him, and make him into a burnt offering in the wilderness, Abraham reckoned that Isaac was, in a real sense, already dead. It was going to happen. We just haven't gotten to the end yet. We're reminded by the author of Hebrews, by faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. That's Hebrews chapter 11. In the mind of Abraham, for three days he was walking and talking with a dead man. But one that God himself would have to resurrect because God had already promised that Isaac was a representative of unborn generations that would bless the whole earth and produce a lineage that would even bring in the Messiah. So, Isaac figuratively returns from the dead, something that Jesus would actually do after his death on the cross. The typology just keeps on coming, doesn't it? Oh, and while we're at it, I wanted to disabuse you of the typical Sunday school image of what's going on here, this whole event. Because usually we see that Isaac is this young, toe-headed boy, blindly trusting his much larger father as they head off into the wilderness. Well, the ancient rabbis were convinced that at this point in the Genesis narrative, Abraham was an old man about 130 years old. And Isaac was almost certainly about 33 years old. Now, isn't that an interesting number? Jesus went to Jerusalem and then on to Golgotha when he was 
33 years old. So Isaac is set forth here again as a type of the Messiah. In any case, Isaac was a strong, fully grown man who could pack a heavy load of wood up the side of a mountain. One who could have easily resisted his father if he chose to when the knife came out. It appears that there was an unspoken level of trust between both these men. A trust that predated and also reflects the trust between God the Father and his only son, Jesus. That brings us to the next typological image, and when you dig into it a bit, it's a doozy. Verse 7 continues, And Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. See, the Hebrew here is a little less nuanced than our translation is because it directly says the lamb or God will provide himself a lamb, which became literally true when Jesus, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, was lifted up on a Roman cross as a sacrificial offering to pay for every last one of our sins. Now, the angel stays Abraham's hand, saying, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. This place of real estate never really had a name until Abraham showed up there, and he named it Jehovah-Jireh. The Lord will provide. But what makes this so provocative is that it acquired other names over time. I mean, eventually, it was in the region of Moriah, so they started calling it Mount Moriah. And this was the place that David ultimately purchased. He purchased a threshing floor there that was going to become the central point of the city of Jerusalem. Also, it would become the eventual site of the temple. And more importantly for our story here, the place where Jesus would be crucified, Golgotha, the place of the skull. Here is where the Lord would provide salvation for all, making the name that Abraham gave it truly prophetic in every sense of the word. There's one last thing that I noticed as I was reading through this. It just caught me, and so I have to mention it. The ram is caught there, snared by its horns. Now, the horn in Jewish symbolism is a sign of strength or power. The brazen altar that was first in the tabernacle and later in the temple was adorned with these images of horns on all four 
corners, symbolizing the power of God. So what this says to me anyway, is that that ram was snared there to be a sacrifice caught by his very own power. And Jesus was the only one who had the power to forgive sins through sacrifice. And because he had that power, he himself held himself in place to become the mediating sacrifice for all of our sins. The Lord set all of this into motion, first in the garden, when he first indicated how humanity would be released from the curse of sin through the sacrifice of a special man, a man born of a virgin, a man able to undo the damage that Satan had coaxed from Adam and Eve. He continued driving the plan through a heathen that he plucked from the desert, promising that he and his heirs would be the conduits of that miracle. When the time was right, Jesus, the beloved only Son of God, presented himself as the perfect atonement, undoing all of the accumulated evil of humanity by living a perfectly obedient life, then dying in our place on the cross. Now, his power brought him there, but it was his love for us that held him there. It's typical. Thanks be to God. Amen.